Welcome to Gateway. I'm Ben Sibley, and this is Colton Sibley. And today we'll be sharing to you imitating Christ's humility, specifically reading Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. You ready to get started, Colton? Yep. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Good morning. Our topic is stubborn joy again. Some of you know Al Green. Al Green is a rock and roll Hall of Fame performer who was best known for a string of R&B hits in the 70s. Of course, the best of them is a song called Let's Stay Together. I would sing it, but I'm afraid my children wouldn't be able to go out in public again. In the song, Green asks achingly in one of his verses, why do people break up? And then in the chorus, he begs, let's, let's stay together. Unfortunately, not long after the song's release, Green's girlfriend committed suicide and Al Green would go on to experience two divorces after this. I'm not picking on Al Green. Breakups happen literally every day, even to the most well-intentioned people. Business partnerships break up, groups, bands, friendships, marriages. Breakups happen every day. It's very hard to stay together. This past Saturday, I performed a wedding for a great young couple who both come from great families. They're deeply in love. They come from models of consistent marriages. They have good interpersonal skills, and they're both emotionally stable. I mean, they're no picnic, but nobody is. Nobody has it all together. And because of that, I can't give that young couple any absolute guarantees. In fact, I said to them, you are about to enter into a relationship that has the power to hurt you more than any relationship you've ever had. And because of that, breakups happen. Sometimes it's for the best. Often in the long run, a new and perhaps better kind of equilibrium is established after a breakup. In fact, when God is involved, this can almost always be the case, but but breakups are costly. Personally, there's always a cost to our joy. I mean, these things are never fun, and there is always collateral damage. But Paul's unmistakable message to us from the passage that the Sibleys read for us this morning is we have what it takes to stay together because of our connection to Christ. 
We have what it takes to stay together because of our connection to Christ. So Paul does three things in this passage. First, he tells us what we have because we're connected to Christ. What is it about our experience that enables us to stay together? Secondly, he tells us what we need to do to capitalize on what we have. What kind of, I mean, literally, what kind of people do we need to be if we're going to stay together? And third, finally, he gives us a model of what it looks like to be that kind of person. So first, what does our connection to Christ offer us that enables us to be people who can stay together? He lists four things. First, he says, there is encouragement from being united in Christ. This word encouragement can also mean consolation or help. Paul's thinking about Christ as our counselor or our coach. Hey, you got this. Uh, you guys are awesome. This makes me think of that uh, Lauren Daigle song, You Say. Have you heard it? Uh, she sings, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I'm falling short and when I don't belong. Oh, you say I am yours. This is what Coach Jesus constantly wants us to hear. There is encouragement that comes from being united with Christ, and God knows we need encouragement. Secondly, Paul reminds us that there is what he calls fellowship with the Spirit because of our connection with Christ. This word fellowship, by the way, translates the Greek word koinonia. It means partnership or fellowship or community. This word and all of its implications and applications throughout Scripture is a significant part of why our church exists. This is the heart of who we are. Our mission statement as a church, in fact, is we exist to be used by God to draw others into authentic Christian community. This idea has literally changed my life, and it's our lifeblood as a congregation. We have fellowship with the Spirit. You know, the Good News Bible translation is just another English translation. It renders this phrase, the Spirit has brought you into fellowship with one another. Now, it certainly means that, but it means more. It means that we have been brought together in Him and because of Him. We're not together like people who are in the same room together. We're together like ingredients cooking in the same soup. And our flavors mix with one another to form something greater, tastier, richer than the individual parts. So we have experienced deep encouragement and we have community with the Spirit. The third thing Paul reminds us is that we have experienced tenderness. Now, this is the coolest word in the Bible, I think. <laughs> the Greek word behind this is sploxnon. It means literally guts. Doesn't it sound like guts? The idea is vulnerability, weakness, softness, tenderness. Think about that. Paul is saying, and saying from his own experience, by the way, that he has experienced God's vulnerableness toward himself, and he knows that we've experienced it as well. Just like I told that young couple last week, they were willingly entering a relationship that was going to hurt them at times in the same way God has entered in with us. And that affects how we act. That affects the kind of people we become. Finally, fourth, Paul reminds us that we have experienced compassion 
This word can also be translated mercy. Have you heard grace defined as getting what you don't deserve and mercy defined as not getting what you do deserve? God has acted toward us with compassion. One time, uh, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was fed up with somebody and he asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? And then he picks the ridiculous number that he'd heard the rabbis use before. He says, up to seven times, Jesus? I mean, literally that many? And Jesus tells the story of a servant whose master forgives him a million-dollar debt. Then the servant goes out debt-free and grabs a fellow servant who owes him $100 and has him thrown in the debtor's prison over the $100 debt. It doesn't end well for that servant. Then Jesus concludes like this, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. If you think about it, really, here's the essence of that dialogue. Jesus, how many times should I forgive that louse? He will not pay me back the hundred dollars. And this is the fourth time this has happened. And Jesus answers, yes. Yes, what, Jesus? Yes, you should forgive. Because you've been forgiven a million dollars. How is it you're keeping such strict accounts of these $100 debts that you think you're owed? Because of our connection to Christ, we have experienced the compassion of God. And that changes the way we interact with others. So encouragement, community, tenderness, compassion. Paul puts these four things out there like a question, doesn't he? If you have any fellowship, if you've experienced any compassion. But of course, it's not a question. It's rhetorical. Paul knows this is our experience because he knows what it's like to have a connection to Christ. He knows what it's like to share that connection with these Philippians. Of course, you have these things. And if you don't, then you're not experiencing the same kind of connection that I am. Well, then, if that's all true, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, Paul knows there's a significant conflict going in in Philippi. Evidently, this is one of the reasons he wrote the letter. I want you to hear about this. It's chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says this, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't get many details here, but we know there has been some kind of breakage. And we know from our experience that the damage which this kind of relationship situation causes is hurtful and joy dampening and and the effects of it spill over well beyond just the participants. There's always damage to our personal joy, and there is collateral damage to our relationships when they break up. So, because of what you have in Christ, because of your connection to Christ, stay together. Stay united. And here's how. So secondly, after reminding us what we've been given because of our connection to Christ, Paul tells us what to do. He tells us what kind of people we're supposed to be. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. You know, if, if we had to summarize this action list in one word, I think we could. I think the key to living a life of unity, the key to staying together, is humility. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia, and hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters. The news of the disaster grew even darker when an investigation revealed that the cause of the accident wasn't a technology problem, and it wasn't natural conditions like thick fog. The cause of the accident was human selfishness. Both captains were aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. So in showing us the kind of people we need to be, Paul gives us another list of four tips. And remember, what he's really doing is teasing out what humility looks like. So tip number one, don't be self-centered. You know, there's got to be a special message in this for those of us who are Americans. We have the reputation of thinking it's all about us. We even have a generation of people known as the me generation. So enough about me. What do you think of me? Paul believes this is something we can restrain in ourselves. We can restrain this because we've experienced encouragement from Christ and fellowship with the Spirit and tenderness and compassion. In fact, we must restrain this tendency if we're going to stay together. We can't be self-centered. Tip number two, don't make it your objective to make a good impression on others. Don't make that the point of your behavior. This is what he means by the phrase vain conceit. This is a rough synonym for pride, right? We cannot make it the aim of our behavior to create a good impression on other people. We have to restrain that tendency in ourselves. Tip number three, consider others better than yourself. Now the point here is not to think badly of yourself. The point is to think of others first. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Buried in this tip is also the encouragement to recognize our own faults, of course. This was what Jesus meant when he said, we worry far less, we should worry, far less about the speck in our friend's eye because we have a plank in our own. We should consider others better than ourselves. I mean, aren't you seeing how this kind of thinking and living would facilitate staying together even through the most trying times? And then tip number four, be interested in others. Literally, look to the interests of other people. Now, all of this adds up to humility. Humility wasn't a valued characteristic in the ancient world and not much more so in ours. In fact, this, this humility issue, this may be the point at which God's values and our culture's values are most in conflict. And I think we often don't see this conflict. Think about it like this. We pursue the highest paying jobs we can get, the most comfortable lifestyles we can afford, and the most pleasurable vacations. And we're willing to endure difficulty and to make sacrifices to achieve those things. Now, of course, that's not necessarily bad. Pursuing these things is not necessarily prideful. That's not what I'm saying. This is not the opposite of humility, but it may be that the pursuit of these things doesn't leave any room for humility. In the same way that living as a professional athlete is not the opposite of being a world-class scholar, 
but one doesn't leave room for the other. It may be that our whole lives, our values, our, our way of thinking pushes out the possibility of humility. I think this is why Jesus' kingdom was such an upside-down way of viewing the world for his listeners and for us. The way to really live, Jesus said, is to die to yourself. What? The way to lead is to serve. The way to the head of the table is to sit on the opposite end. What does that even mean, Jesus? And here in our passage, Paul is agreeing with Jesus. From the very beginning of our lives, we grab for what we want as best we can. We learn how to demand that our needs be met. And then we're hurt and surprised when we can't seem to stay together. Perhaps we need to recognize that community or staying together requires an entirely different mindset and approach. And we can. We can do it. Because of what we've experienced in Christ. We have what it takes. Once our lives are connected to Christ, we have what it takes to follow the way of Jesus. We have what it takes to make our relationships work. We have what it takes to stay together, even through the most difficult circumstances. So third big point, where's our model for this? What does this look like? Where's the model for this life of humility? And he offers one of the most well-known passages in the Bible as a model. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be taken advantage of. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're looking at the text this morning, you'll notice that the formatting of these verses is probably different in your Bible than the rest of the text. That's because most scholars believe Paul is quoting a familiar hymn here. Imagine him being in the middle of making a point about God's grace and then launching into a lengthy quote from Amazing Grace. Something like that seems to be what's happening here. And what a hymn it is, right? This is a virtuoso of theology and a profound affirmation of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Look, I get that some of us struggle with wrapping our minds around the idea of the Trinity. It's mind-boggling. But then so is quantum mechanics, and it doesn't mean it's not true. And I know there are plenty of us who struggle to believe it. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is the theological reason why Muslims think we're heretics. And it's kind of understandable. What I don't understand are the people who believe that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. I mean, the word is never used, but have you read this passage? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Come on! You know, in the early centuries, there were a few heretical groups who used this teaching to suggest that Jesus wasn't actually human. Instead, he was like a walking God. He was in very nature God, Paul says. The Apostle John puts it like this in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
And Paul is peddling the exact same belief here. But he does so to make a larger point. I mean, how could you make any point bigger than that? And yet Paul uses this titanic doctrine to make another point right. He wants to highlight Jesus's humility and then offer that humility as a model for us. We used to sing this chorus called, Lord, I lift your name on high. Some of you know it. The B part of that song goes like this. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. That's a very good summary of what Paul says here. Notice the movement of Jesus from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and each time getting lower, each movement more sacrificial than the last, each phase more humble. Let me summarize what this hymn tells us. Jesus was God, or more properly, we should say Jesus was one with the Father, God from God. He was equal to the Father, fully divine in every sense, but somehow through the infinite capacity and mystery of God's will, he enabled himself to become fully human. This was made possible because of his humility. In fact, as a human being, he did not take advantage of his divinity. That means as fully God and fully human, he always acted fully humble. More so, his humility allowed him to be born as part of the poorer classes and eventually led him to death. And not just any death, but the most despised form of death. And this was an expression of his obedience to God the Father. This kind of radical humility that reflects radical obedience is the model for us. This is how life should be lived. And if it is, we will be able to stay together and our joy will be protected and even completed in spite of any circumstances. So, before we leave today, let me take a few minutes and apply this principle to a couple of our circumstances. Let's take our current cultural circumstance. Specifically, take Gateway Community Church as a laboratory. Here we are sitting at home and during a global pandemic, our church hasn't met together for 10 weeks and we all feel a little weird about it. And now things are beginning to relax, but we realize we are a long way from normal. Now let's further complicate our situation by recognizing that different ones of us have vastly different feelings about all of this. Some of us feel like if anyone breathes within a soccer field's distance from another person, they've violated the human rights of all parties involved, and others of us are ready to start hitting people just for wearing masks in public. Of course, I exaggerate, but only a little bit. Because somehow, somehow, even this issue has become tribal. Somehow we've created political conflict out of an infection. Well, if we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we will not bring that attitude to Gateway. If we have any fellowship with the Spirit, we can and we will consider others better than ourselves. We can and we will look first to the interests of others. If we have experienced any tenderness or compassion, we can and we will humble ourselves. In short, don't bring that to Gateway. We're going to be like-minded. We're going to be one in spirit and purpose, regardless of what goes on in the larger culture. Let's take another example. For those of us who are married, and this can really apply to all of our relationships, but let's use our marriages as a laboratory. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not easy. 
actively considering others better than ourselves, thwarting our own selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's constant work. It ain't easy. Why would we do that work? Because if we don't, our marriage, in fact, all of our relationships, will be muted. We will draw back at critically important points just when we should be pressing in because of hurt or disappointment because they aren't all that we thought they were, or they're less than we thought they were, or we can't live up to all they want us to live up to, we'll draw back. We'll hold ourselves. We'll protect ourselves. And we'll damage the relationship. If the relationship stays together, it will be less. Our joy will be muted. It will offer less life and richness than it might otherwise. That's if we manage to stay together. Do you see... We're going to do the work either way. We do it on the front end, examining ourselves and thwarting our baser prideful tendencies. And that offers us a chance of deep, life-giving relationships on the back end. Or we do the slow grinding work on the back end of self-protecting and necessarily distancing ourselves. When we end up doing that back end work, meaning when our pride gets involved and we're distancing ourselves, not only do we mute our joy, but remember there's always collateral damage. There are always others who end up in the icy waters. So what should we do? Well, as with most spiritual exercises, we start with repentance. God, I've blown it. And here's how. The father loves to hear that kind of prayer. Remember the tender and compassionate part? And then with his help, and we have it, remember the encouragement part. With his help, we follow the tips. We begin to resist self-centeredness. We, we ask him to show us how to live, regardless of the opinions of others. We begin to consider others better than ourselves, and we actively pursue caring for others. Let's do it, y'all, because we can. All right, let's pray. Father, this is rich and this is life-giving for us. We need the kind of connections that are facilitated because of our connection to you. We can do that as we press into you and as we allow you to release in us the life as it's lived by Jesus, the life of humility, the life of obedience, your way, the upside-down way. Bless us, Lord, this morning, this week, as we apply this to our lives, massage this truth into our hearts. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So, because of our connection to Christ, we have what it takes to stay together. So, in honor of Al Green, let's, let's stay together, whether times are good or bad. Happy or sad, we can do it.